welcome everyone to the Wilson Center, where we tackle global issues through independent research, honest dialogue, and actionable ideas. I'm Mark Green. I have the honor of leading the Wilson Center, and today, the honor of introducing a very important, very timely discussion. In recent months, following the unjust, outrageous incarceration of opposition leader uh, Alexei Navalny, Russian authorities have arrested record numbers of protesters. They've cracked down on critical media outlets and independent groups, and they've labeled foreign organizations as undesirable or foreign agents. Now, I can't help but recall that I used to lead an organization that was once ruled undesirable by Putin, the International Republican Institute. And I also remember having to go to Senator John McCain, who was the chairman of IRI, and tell him we had been declared undesirable. And of course, his response was, what took you so long? And then he pointed out that when he was declared undesirable by Putin, he put out a press release saying, there goes spring break in Siberia. The reason that he joked like that is because he understood that when those sorts of designations occur, when the crackdowns occur, it's not a sign of strength, it's a sign of weakness. It's a sign that Putin and his regime is fearful of the people. In the wake of the Navalny arrest, detention and mistreatment, and apparently the fear of the wrath of a fully informed citizenry, Authorities have slowed access to the internet in Russia. Again, they're afraid of getting information in the hands of citizens. They're taking steps to either partially or fully block websites and do everything they can to further enable government control and censorship. Last month, Putin's security services apprehended numerous human rights defenders, academics, and lawyers. Among them were two with ties to the Wilson Center. Sergei Davidis, a former Kennedy Institute fellow who was detained for merely retweeting a tweet about a rally in support of Navalny. And prominent human rights lawyer, Ivan Pavlov, an alumnus of the Wilson Center and contributor to the Kennedy Institute on such topics as freedom, information, and public uh, oversight in Russia. While these two have been released, they're under constant threat of re-arrest uh, and constant harassment. So of course, we demand that the Kremlin immediately cease harassing not only Sergei and Ivan, but all voices of democracy. And we demand that Putin release all political prisoners at once. And now to our panel. I first met Vladimir Karamurza in 2015 when he had just emerged from a coma caused by poisoning. Two years later, he would be poisoned a second time and once again, survive against all odds. When I spoke with him after that first time, I asked him if he had any advice for US policymakers and democracy activists. Well, Vladimir was still in pretty bad shape, but he whispered to me forcefully, never give up on the Russian people, never. Vladimir presently serves as the chairman of the Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom. He serves as vice president at the Free Russia Foundation, a senior advisor to Human Rights First, and a senior fellow at the Wallenberg Center for Human Rights. He has won numerous awards for his courage and activism and leadership. But still perhaps his greatest honor is that it is ever so clear that he has never wavered from the message that he gave me a few years ago.
He has never, ever given up on the Russian people or their freedom. I'm now going to turn it over to the Wilson Center's own Matt Rajansky to provide additional information about today's discussion and to leave what I know will be a fascinating conversation. Matt's the director of the Kennan Institute. He is one of the country's leading analysts on U.S. relations with Russia, Ukraine, and the region. He has advised governments and international organizations, and he leads track two diplomacy on Eurasian conflicts. His work is thoughtful and innovative, and we are very fortunate to have him. Matt, the floor is yours. Well, thanks very much, Mark. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and thank you to you, Vladimir, for joining us this morning. We're uh, always following you wherever you may be in the world, uh, not least because, as Mark mentioned, concerns about your safety, uh, but because it always is interesting. And uh, we're very fortunate to get an hour of your time this morning. Um, obviously, the subject is not a fortunate one. Uh, every time you think that the repressions have peaked, uh, it's like COVID waves, I suppose. You, you can see another wave of repressions coming. Uh, and this moment is no exception, uh, even literally the news coming out today. And I know that we'll discuss all of that. Uh, before we start, I want to remind all of our listeners that you can stay up to date uh, with events and analysis uh, coming out of the Kennan Institute by tuning into our podcasts, Kennan X and the Russia File, uh, as well as reading our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. During the course of today's discussion, uh, you can submit a question at any point by emailing Kenan, K-E-N-N-A-N, at wilsoncenter.org, tweeting at Kenan Institute, or posting on our Facebook page. And please include your name and affiliation so I know who's asking the questions. I'll see them pop up before me, and I will try to get as many of them as possible in front of Vladimir. Um, so without taking any more of our time, uh, I want to give the floor now to Vladimir to open up with a few thoughts of his own, and then we'll dive right into the conversation. Please. Thank you so much, uh, Matt. Thank you to the Kennan Institute for hosting uh, our conversation this morning. And I want to thank Ambassador Green for his humbling and overly kind introduction. It's always good to be uh, back among friends at the Wilson Center. I've had many uh, friends of mine, including uh, some of the people whom Ambassador Green mentioned in his introduction, who were uh, past fellows of the Kennan Institute, uh, and I very much look forward to the day when we can uh, get together again in person uh, for events at the Reagan Building, which hopefully is not too far around the corner. Uh, we're speaking um, on a symbolic week. This, this week marks the centennial of uh, Andrei Sakharov, the great Russian scientist, humanist, and dissident, one of the great citizens of my country, um, the, the biggest and uh, the most respected European Human Rights Prize awarded annually by the European Parliament uh, is named after Andrei Sakharov. And, you know, every time I hear, uh, which I still do astonishingly often, not as not as often as before, but still in Western audience, uh, in Western audiences, this sort of old, tired and offensive stereotype that, you know, these Russians are somehow just not made for democracy. They're not ready for democracy. They, they, they can't live under a democracy. I, uh, well, I, I have a few things I can remind people of, but one of the things I remind them of is that um, the largest, the oldest, and the most respected uh, European-wide human rights prize is named after a Russian citizen. So this Friday, May 21st, is going to mark the centennial of Andrei Sakharov. And just yesterday, uh, the Moscow authorities, Moscow City Hall, um, has officially uh, banned, refused to authorize uh, a photo exhibit uh, that the Sakharov Center was planning to hold on uh, Chiste Prudy. Those of you who have been to Moscow uh, 
uh, know the you know the beautiful boulevard ring and if you walk out of Chisti Brudy metro station and walk towards Pokrovka there's now uh, sort of this um, compilation of stands where you have moving photo exhibits uh, dedicated to to important events for example just now recently there was there was a photo exhibit uh, uh, on this on the on the second world war uh, because of victory day uh, that we marked on May 9th. Um, as May 21st approaches, the Sakharov Center was planning with permission from the Moscow authorities to organize uh, an exhibit of photographs uh, by uh, Russian photographers of, of Andrei Sakharov in different years of his life, accompanied by uh, uh, quotations from him, from his writings, from his books, from his speeches. Uh, and it became known yesterday that the Moscow City Hall has withdrawn this permission and the exhibit is not going to go ahead. Now, of course, on, on on one level, it's uh, it's shameful, certainly shameful um, for the people who have signed on to this decision, uh, not to speak of people who, who ordered them to. But actually, I think paradoxically, in a way, it's quite appropriate that they have done this because um, I think it would have been pretty hypocritical to have a photo exhibit in downtown Moscow uh, in honor of Andrei Sakharov at a time uh, when the situation in our country is so strikingly similar to what it was when Sakharov was being force-fed uh, in, in, in a hospital while on a hunger strike during his internal exile in the closed city of Gorky in the 1980s. Just as then, today we have uh, a repressive uh, authoritarian state that denies its citizens the most basic uh, rights and freedoms, including the freedom uh, of speech and of the press. We have media outlets that serve as tools, aggressive and, and hysterical tools for government-sponsored propaganda. We have elections uh, that just as in Soviet times are meaningless rituals with predetermined results. Just as in Sakharov time, um, we have state-sponsored political repression. In his Nobel lecture in 1975, so just over four years before he was sent to that internal exile, in Gorky, uh, Andrei Sakharov wrote uh, that he is dedicating his Nobel Peace Prize uh, to uh, prisoners of conscience in the Soviet Union, and he listed by name 126 people who were known to him at the time in 1975, in December 1975, as prisoners of conscience in the USSR. Now, th this was not an exhaustive list by any means. There were many more people, but these were cases that were known to Sakharov, 126 prisoners of conscience in the Soviet Union in 1975. Today, in Vladimir Putin's Russia, in the year 2021, there are 383 political prisoners. I just checked this number before uh, going live with this event. These are the figures uh, put forward by the Memorial Human Rights Center, led by the political prisoner support program, is led by Sergei Davidis, whom uh, Ambassador Green mentioned in his introduction, a Pascanin Institute fellow, who was just a few days ago released after serving uh, an administrative arrest. Uh, for retweeting information about a rally in support of Alexei Navalny uh, in April. So Sergei is leading that uh, program at Memorial that, that dedicates itself to documenting and chronicling political repression in, in Putin's Russia today. And this number, 383, is just as much of an underestimate as the 126 named by Sakharov was in 1975, because this figure only includes cases that have been uh, vetted and studied by Memorial, so they can vouch for every single case on that list. And more than that, uh, this list only includes the people who correspond to the very strict, uh, very conservative, very restrictive, I would say, criteria 
established by the Council of Europe and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe on who constitutes a political prisoner. So according to that very strict, very rigid criteria, with all of these caveats and limitations, the number of political prisoners in Vladimir Putin's Russia in the year 2021 is more than double the number of prisoners of conscience in the Soviet Union in the mid-1970s when Sakharov was writing his Nobel lecture, and this is a, a frightening fact. Um, just uh, a few weeks ago, uh, on the 21st of April, there was a big rally, uh, uh, I was going to say in Moscow, because I was at the rally in Moscow, but there were rallies, in fact, nationwide all over the country, tens of thousands of people who came out to uh, protest the unlawful and politically motivated imprisonment of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Uh, and uh, now, as we speak, uh, some people around the country uh, are still serving out administrative arrests for committing no crime except trying to exercise their constitutional right to freedom of assembly. Back in January, when we had nationwide protests immediately after the arrest of Alexei Navalny, we had 11,000 detentions made on one single day. This was a record for modern Russia. 11,000 people detained by police across the country in a single day for exercising uh, their peaceful right to uh, freedom of assembly. So uh, it is in a way uh, appropriate uh, that the Moscow City Hall has refused to authorize the exhibit uh, in honor of Andrei Sakharov, while the situation um, in, in Russia today is as bad and in, in some cases worse than it was when he was serving out his, his internal exile in Gorky. The reason I say it's it, it's worse is because, not just because of the, the, the numbers of political prisoners, not just because of the ever-growing repression, and it's hard to, it's hard to catch on to all of these um, uh, new repressive initiatives that the Russian uh, so-called parliament is rubber stamping literally every single week, just now, again, just before going to these event, uh, to this event, I opened up uh, Echo of Moscow, uh, the main news uh, page, and just today, uh, the Russian State Duma has passed on the first reading two new bills, one of which uh, would prohibit uh, anybody associated with a quote-unquote extremist organization uh, from running for any elected office at any level, municipal, regional, or national. Uh, and the second one would provide for up to six years in prison uh, for any Russian citizen associated with a quote-unquote undesirable organization. Now, of course, it's uh, it's important to clarify that it is the Russian government that decides which organization is undesirable and which organization is extremist. If you go on the Russian uh, Justice Ministry's website, and you open up the uh, official registry of undesirable organizations, I think that would actually give a pretty good idea uh, of what the biggest phobias and the biggest fears uh, for the current Kremlin regime are. You'll see organizations such as the European Platform for Democratic Elections. You'll see organizations such as the Open Society Institute, the International Republican Institute, the National Democratic Institute, the National Endowment for Democracy, and many, many, many other groups whose mission it is to promote the basic uh, rights and freedoms that should be the accepted norm in the 21st century, uh, but are still equated to criminal activity uh, in the largest country in Europe today in the 21st century. And as for the extremist designation, uh, well, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, in a move that directly echoes the infamous Article 70 uh, of the Soviet era criminal code that penalized anti-Soviet agitation propaganda and that sent uh, some of the leading dissidents in the Soviet Union, like Yuri Orlov or Vladimir Bukovsky or Sergei Kovalev, uh, two years behind bars and gulags and prisons and penal colonies, uh, echoing back to that article, 
the Russian government has officially recriminalized uh, opposition activity by um, suspending and designating as extremist uh, the nationwide network of political movements, uh, regional-based political movements uh, belonging, um, or, or I should say associated with Russian opposition leader and prisoner of conscience, Alexei Navalny, putting a peaceful political opposition group whose methods include supporting candidates in elections, holding peaceful street rallies, uh, or um, conducting public anti-corruption investigations, most prominently the recent investigative documentary into Vladimir Putin's $1.3 billion lavish Italian-style palace on the Russian Black Sea coast with terrorist groups such as ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Taliban. Anybody associated with the official uh, court ruling on the extremist designation for the Navalny uh, movement will come on June the 7th, but I think, uh, I don't think I know everybody already is certain of the result, um, as is the case with the current uh, justice system in Russia. Anybody associated uh, with this network of uh, organizations uh, led by Alexei Navalny will be liable for up to six years imprisonment. Anybody who's ever donated money, and by the way, this law has a retroactive effect. So anybody who's ever donated money to any of these organizations, even 100 rubles in the past three years, face up to eight years in prison. Anybody who has been leading in any way any of these organizations, either nationwide or on a regional level, will face up to 10 years of imprisonment, again, for committing no crime except being opposed, actively opposed to the regime of Vladimir Putin. So uh, among the many steps that harken back to the uh, worst repressive practices of the Soviet era and that were brought back by the regime of Vladimir Putin in recent years, they have now officially recriminalized uh, opposition activity, equating it to uh, extremism uh, and, and uh, uh, making it liable for several years of real prison term. But of course, when I say that in some ways the situation is worse uh, in terms of state-sponsored repression today than it was when Sakharov was writing his Nobel lecture, is that because, you know, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, leading dissidents uh, in the Soviet Union were either uh, in internal exile like Sakharov, in external exile like Solzhenitsyn, uh, or in prison like Orlov or Bukowski. Today, the leading political opponent of Vladimir Putin's regime is dead. It's now more than six years uh, since Boris Nemtsov, former deputy prime minister of the Russian Federation, the most prominent, the most effective, the most powerful political opponent of the corrupt and authoritarian regime of Vladimir Putin was murdered, gunned down literally in front of the Kremlin walls. And to this day, more than six years on, the organizers and masterminds of this most brazen and most high profile political assassination in the modern history of Russia uh, continue to enjoy full uh, protection uh, from the highest levels of the Russian state. And I think the reason is very obvious to everybody who is joining us uh, in this conversation today. Uh, Alexei Navalny, of course, now unlawfully incarcerated in the Pokrov penal colony in Vladimir region, about 300 miles outside of Moscow. When I say unlawfully incarcerated, this is not my opinion. This is an official verdict from the European Court of Human Rights that had found uh, his conviction, his verdict, uh, to be uh, unlawful and politically motivated and who has specifically and directly requested the Russian authorities to immediately release Navalny. So he's being held in violation of a direct order by the European Court of Human Rights. And this is why I say unlawfully. He himself also survived uh, a state-sponsored assassination attempt uh, last year uh, in August of 2020 at the hands of a special uh, FSB unit, Federal Security Service of the Russian Federation unit, 
that is uh, uh, responsible for the use of chemical weapons. The same people who have been identified by a media investigation led by Bellingcat, uh, who were behind my two poisonings in 2015, 2017. They've identified specific FSB officers with names and ranks and dates of birth uh, who have been involved uh, in a slate of uh, state-sponsored assassination attempts, as in the case of Alexei Navalny and myself, or actual state-sponsored assassinations, as were the case of many opposition activists who were not as fortunate as Alexei and I to fit into that few percentage chance uh, to survive. But I don't want to end uh, on this uh, sort of tragic and pessimistic uh, note of repression. Everybody, everybody knows about uh, the repressive nature of Vladimir Putin's regime. He's now been in power for more than 20 years. I don't think there's a person on this planet uh, who um, still uh, is genuinely uninformed about the true nature of the Putin regime. Those people uh, who are still publicly defending it must have some sort of a reason, a vested interest in doing so. Uh, so everybody, everybody is well aware, I think, of the of the repressive side of it. That that is the side that is very often and publicly covered in uh, in international media as well. I want to briefly mention the other side of the equation too, because one other message that I very often try to convey when I speak to Western audiences is that please do not equate the Putin regime with Russia, because they are two very different things. Too often, far too often, we hear from Western political leaders, Western commentators, Western journalists, the use of this sort of easy shorthand expression. When they talk about the Kremlin, when they talk about the Putin regime, when they talk about the Russian government, they just replace it with Russia for ease of reference. They say, Russia did this, Russia invaded that, Russia annexed, you know, sanctions against Russia, behavior of Russia. I know it may sound like a small semantic point, but it is very important to those of us who are also Russians and who are fundamentally opposed to the corruption, nepotism, and oppression that Vladimir Putin and his regime represent. And so to this difference between the Putin regime in Russia, I think it's, it's very important to emphasize the fact that everything the Kremlin has been doing in recent years, all of this horrific, expansion of state-sponsored repressions uh, against those Russians who disagree with the system. All of this comes not from strength, but from weakness. As Ambassador Green uh, uh, pointed out uh, very rightly in his introduction, we are now four months away, less than four months away uh, from a parliamentary election. Vladimir Putin's party, United Russia, is down to 27% in the polls nationally and down to 15%, one five, in Moscow. Vladimir Putin himself, in an open question, Levada Center poll about public confidence and political leaders, is down in the low, down to the low 30s among the general Russian population and down to just 20% among the younger uh, voter age bracket, those between the ages of 18 and 25, the people who have never seen anybody except Vladimir Putin in their lives because he's been in power for such a long time. These figures are, are shameful for a dictator who controls the entire media machine, the whole government apparatus, the whole political system, uh, and and they, and they're terrified. And everything they do, all of these new rubber stamp repressive laws, all of these arrests, all of these repressions, all of these measures to try to scare opponents, are because they feel weak, and insecure. We see this not only in opinion polls. We see this um, with the protests that I've already referenced that have been going on, really in a big way in the last couple of years, beginning in the summer of 2019. Uh, with the mass protests in Moscow after the disqualification of opposition candidates uh, from the Moscow City Duma elections. We have seen this again in a big way 
uh, in the last year um, in the Russian Far East in Khabarovsk, where at one point tens of thousands of people in a city uh, whose population is 500,000 uh, went out to the streets to protest the removal by the Kremlin of the local elected governor. We have seen this again from the beginning of this year nationwide from January all over Russia, literally from the Baltic Sea to the Pacific Ocean, when hundreds of thousands of people, mostly young people, went out to protest the unlawful arrest of Alexei Navalny, knowing, because these protests were quote-unquote unauthorized by the authorities, knowing that everyone who went to those protests could be detained, could be arrested, could be beaten up, could face expulsion from the university or sacking from their job, and yet hundreds of thousands of people still went across the country. We see this also in election results across Russia. You know, for, for many years, Vladimir Putin's uh, regime managed to maintain its political dominance uh, by essentially keeping out opponents from the ballot, right? It should be difficult to lose an election when your opponent is not on the ballot. And this is what happens in most cases in Russian elections going back years. Those people who are, have a genuine chance against the regime are usually disqualified from the ballot ahead of time. This happened, for example, with Navalny uh, in the presidential election in 2018. This is no longer working for the regime because such is the growing level of public discontent with Putin and with the Kremlin that Russian citizens are finding creative ways to send that message. And again, we saw that very vividly in the Moscow City Duma elections in 2019, when after, after, even after disqualifying the strongest opposition candidates from the ballot, the Kremlin still lost in nearly half of the districts, 20 out of 45 for the Moscow City Duma, lost to literally nobody, just some technical spoilers who happened to be on the ballot just to imitate competition. And people went and voted for them just to send a message to the Kremlin with just how fed up they are with seeing that single face on their television screens now into its third uh, into its third decade. My favorite story was in the north of Moscow in Mitin and Shukina district for the Moscow City Duma where a good friend of mine, Alexander Solovyov uh, of the Open Russia movement was running uh, for a seat uh, for the, on the Moscow City Duma. He was disqualified from the ballot as were other opposition candidates. He was jailed for the duration of the campaign, spent it sitting in a detention center. But there was another candidate with the same name, you know, classic spoiler tactic, Alexander Solovyov, um, whom they put to confuse voters. And I, I guess they just forgot to take him off the ballot. And when election day came a few days before the vote, Alexei Navalny's organization called uh, on Muscovites. Uh, they have this smart voting initiative, sort of a tactical voting drive where they call on people even when there are no genuine opposition candidates to vote for God knows whom just some spoilers happen to be on the ballot to send a message to the Kremlin and its people. And so um, a few days before the vote, the Navalny organization called on, on uh, voters in that district to back this fake Alexander Solovyov. Now, he's never appeared in the district. He hasn't held a single meeting. He hasn't published a single leaflet. He hasn't met a single voter. He hasn't spent a single dime on, on campaigning. He won on a landslide. Uh, against the pro-Kremlin candidate. And for two days after the election, the Electoral Commission tried to locate where this guy was to actually get in touch with him and tell him that he's now an elected member of the Moscow City Duma. Now, it's, it's an absurd story, but there's a very serious point behind it. As such is the growing level of discontent, especially in big cities, especially among the younger Russians, uh, with the Putin regime, with the Putin system, and with Putin personally, because you can get fed up with anyone after 20 years in power. Um, that none of these restrictions, none of these repressions, none of these uh, gimmicks that the uh, regime is trying to put out to preserve its political dominance appear to be working anymore. And now, as we are four months away from a national parliamentary election, the Kremlin is terrified. Um, and I think the biggest reason for it to be worried, and it's actually a valid reason, 
is that uh, there were SNAP surveys conducted at the um, at the protests in January, the nationwide protests in support of Navalny, which showed that the median age of, of those people, uh, of those hundreds of thousands who attended those protests in January, was 31 years of age. The people who are only just beginning uh, their full uh, adult professional lives. Now, that generation is the future of Russia, and Vladimir Putin isn't. And at the end of the day, there's nothing the Kremlin is going to be able to do about that. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you this morning. Thank you, Matt, for moderating this. And I very much look forward to the questions and comments from you uh, and, and from, from our colleagues in the audience. Thanks very much, Vladimir. Uh, we, we have a lot of questions already coming in, but I want to remind anybody who'd like to add theirs now. Email kenan at wilsoncenter.org, tweet us at Kenan Institute, or post on our Facebook page. Um, of course, I get the prerogative as, as host and moderator to ask my own questions. And I want to start where you left off. Help us understand uh, if the regime faces such obvious discontent, especially in Moscow, but no doubt beyond it, um, why do they continue to hold elections? Uh, and it's interesting, you know, when, when you and, and many others uh, report on the figures, um, we presume, and we know, I think, that, that the figures are falsified in places like Chechnya, where you get more than 100% turnout, but we presume that, that they're not. Uh, in some districts of Moscow, at least, where the results are disappointing for the regime. So, so why, you know, it's the, the old Stalin line, right? It doesn't matter who votes, it matters who counts the vote. So why are they holding elections and letting people actually have a real vote when they're getting these disappointing results? Explain what you think is the logic there. Uh, and, 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 and if I can uh, append to that quickly, you mentioned smart voting. Uh, do you think smart voting overall is a good strategy? I understand the result is a little bit uh, remarkable, but, but what do you make of the smart voting strategy? Thank you, Matt, for both questions. Um, uh, first of all, on, on your first question about elections, you, you, um, uh, you said that uh, why is the regime still allowing people to have a real vote? Well, let, let's make one thing clear. It's not a real vote. Uh, the last time we in Russia had a free, fair, competitive, and democratic election, uh, was in uh, 1999 for parliament and in 2000 for president, the year Putin came to power. This is not me who's saying it. This is the, um, uh, these are the observer missions from the Council of Europe and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the gold standard for election observation in our part of the world. If you look at all of the uh, mission statements, all of their observer reports, every nationwide election in Russia, beginning with the parliamentary election in 2003, which I remember very well having been a candidate for the Russian State Duma in that election, and then all the subsequent presidential and parliamentary elections to this day have failed to meet even the most basic uh, criteria uh, for fairness in electoral competition. So these are not real votes. If Putin ever allowed a real vote, he would not be in power. I think that's important to state at the outset. You know, every time I hear this uh, sort of uh, repetition even sometimes from well-informed Western analysts of this Kremlin propaganda line that, yeah, you know, Putin may have his problems, but at least he's genuinely popular with Russian voters. Really? I mean, I only have one question always to this. If he's really as popular as he says he is, why hasn't he allowed a single free election in the 20 years that he's been in power? Very simple question. Um, uh, and and, and the, the, the point I was making about elections is that even when elections are not free, even when elections are not fair, even when in the vast majority of cases, genuine opposition candidates are not allowed anywhere near the ballot, the regime is still losing 
in many places and not just in Moscow. Thank you for making this point. It's important. I, I travel a lot around the regions of Russia as part of my work. Uh, I'm a Moscovite myself, but I go all over the country. And you can see this uh, everywhere. In fact, if anything, protest sentiments are higher uh, out in the regions than they are in Moscow and St. Petersburg. But they are pretty high up in Moscow and St. Petersburg as well. Why the regime still bothers holding uh, elections? Well, you uh, you quoted from Stalin. Of course, they did as well, right? Every five years, uh, Soviet citizens went to uh, to those polling places, handed a ballot with a single name and, and put it in a ballot box. What's the point of this? I, I guess it's just that, well, already in the 20th century, certainly now in the 21st, the only internationally acceptable um, source of legitimacy is an election. Uh, uh, even if it's not an election in substance, they still want to put up the facade of an election. Um, I guess this would be my response why they're doing it. But what is remarkable is that even with all of these uh, sort of restrictions and limits and, and, and manipulations that they're putting in place, they are starting to lose uh, in a more and more visible way, especially in big cities. Uh, we have seen this already in uh, many places at a local level. I mentioned the Moscow city elections in 2019. We saw the same thing in Siberia just this past September uh, during the local elections of 2020. One, for example, the leaders of the Navalny movement, who are all now going to be designated as extremists and could face several years of, of, of imprisonment, uh, they have all been elected to, uh, to legislatures in Novosibirsk and Tomsk in those big Siberian, two big Siberian cities when Alexei Navalny went to campaign. As you know, he was poisoned in Tomsk uh, uh, on the way back, on the way back to, uh, to Moscow. Um, and um, you mentioned also uh, sort of this contrast between Chechnya and places like that, where the rigging is 100%, and places like Moscow, St. Petersburg, where uh, the rigging is less. It's still there, but it's less uh, visible. Dmitry Ereshkin, a very prominent Russian political analyst, coined a term, electoral sultanates. By this, he means those regions of Russia, like Chechnya, like Dagestan, like Ingushetia, like Bashkortostan, like Tatarstan, uh, the regions where what well, well, basically elections take place like they do in Belarus, where nobody even pretends to count the votes. They just announce the results ahead of time. You know, it's like that old Soviet era joke where, um, you know, a party official comes into the office in the morning and he sees the first secretary running around his office, you know, tearing his hair out. And he says, comrade, what's what, what's happened? What, why are you so worried? He said, somebody somebody broke in and stole election results from our safe. And, and the official said, well, don't worry, they've already all been published in, in the newspapers. And he said, you don't understand, they stole next year's election results. This is, this is how things happen in these electoral sultanates. But the problem for the regime is that they now increasingly feel the need to do the same in those big cities. And in fact, they've been doing it a long, uh, for a long time now. You, uh, of course, remember the big protest a decade ago on Balotne on Sakharov Avenue in Moscow. The reason for such a big scale of protests back then is because they started to rig big time in Moscow. Uh, and St. Petersburg, in the big cities, for the whole world to see. And this is what caused such an outbreak, such a reaction. Um, they're going to have to do the same this year. Because given all these figures, given all these polls, given all these very clear trends in public opinion, and given the, the tactical effectiveness, absolutely no question about it, of uh, Navalny's smart vote initiative, uh, they have no way, no mathematical way to keep even a simple majority, let alone a two-thirds majority in the State Duma this year for the Putin party, unless they rig in a big way, including in the big cities, including in Moscow, including in St. Petersburg. So let's see what happens in terms of the public reaction in September. The election is September the 19th. 
let's see what happens on September 20th. On your question about smart voting, um, I have my own views on this. I've written extensively about it um, uh, on, on, on sort of the moral, some of the moral aspects of smart voting, which, which I find to be difficult. Uh, I do not think it is ethical for me to sort of speak about this publicly now that Alexei Navalny uh, is unlawfully incarcerated and, and, and basically being kept in torturous conditions. As you know, he was on a hunger strike for several weeks, um, held in complete violation of all Russian laws and European Convention of Human Rights. In this situation, I don't feel uh, I have the right to sort of publicly uh, publicly comment on, on this issue because I think uh, there's it's, it's, there's a moral and ethical aspect of when you know when a prisoner of conscience um, uh, sort of speaks out. I don't think it's ethical to argue back unless and until that person is free uh, and is able to fully argue back um, himself. Okay, well let's. Um... But, but presumably people can can read what you've written uh, in the past on, on smart voting and, and I think that would be worthwhile. Um, let me take uh, one question and follow up to what you were saying about what's going on in the regions. Uh, Karen and Jack Siegel, who were the first Americans assigned to the US consulate in Yekaterinburg in 1994, uh, asked about what's happening in Russia's hinterlands, protests, crackdowns, and specifically in Yekaterinburg, uh, where the U.S. has a consulate that is being threatened with closure. And uh, I might append to that, do you see a connection, do you see a direct connection between the desire of uh, the Russian officials, uh, obviously, to reduce the, the U.S. presence across the Russian Federation uh, and their fear of, of political protest? Thank you very much for the question. Uh, the US consulate in Yekaterinburg was uh, officially shut down this week. The consul general left, um, as was the consul general in Vladivostok, uh, and the consul general in St. Petersburg has been shut down since 2017. And the US embassy in Moscow is now basically down to a, a minimum skeletal size. And, and as you know, they've uh, completely uh, shut down all the visa opera uh, operations as of last week. So yes, the US diplomatic presence in, in Russia, uh, I think is now the lowest it's, it's, it's ever been actually in the time that our countries have had diplomatic relations. On, on uh, Yekaterinburg, I'm actually gonna be there next week. Um, I'm, I'm gonna have a film screening for one of my documentaries uh, as part of the, um, uh, as part of the uh, program for the centennial of Andrei Sakharov that will be hosted by the Boris Yeltsin Presidential Center. Uh, it's an amazing institution. I would recommend anybody who has an opportunity to go and visit. It's only a two hour flight from Moscow. It's brilliantly done. And it's, uh, it's an amazing oasis of sort of free thinking and um, accurate representation of history in this horrible sea of Putin state propaganda that, you know, trumpets every single day from every television screen about those horrible 90s, how things were bad, how Russia was on its knees, how we were run by Americans and all the rest of this nonsense they, they keep putting up. When you go to the Yeltsin Presidential Center, um, it's like, and I remember those times, I lived in the 1990s. I, actually, I'm really interested in how young people, uh, what young people feel there, those who do not remember the 90s, those who haven't lived there, or maybe those who weren't even born in the 90s. But for me, well, first of all, I feel a lot of nostalgia for my childhood, but also apart from that, um, 
it's I, I would just recommend anybody who has an opportunity to go and spend a full day there it's really well made uh, and it's it's an accurate historically accurate very effectively portrayed uh, portrait of Russia as it was in the 1990s with all the plus and minuses they don't try to whitewash uh, they have October 93 they have the war in Chechnya everything is there but they also have the political freedoms and, and the elections and the independent media and just the hopes and the and, and the and the aspirations that people had back then which which are non-existent now um, and so anyway I'll be I'll be there for a for a film screening as part of the Sakharov Centennial program next week in Yekaterinburg very much looking forward to that I haven't been in a couple of years but uh, Yekaterinburg is actually a pretty good example of why uh, the regime feels the need to put out all these uh, limits and repressions and bans that they come up with every single week. Uh, Yekaterinburg was one of the last cities in Russia uh, that had a directly elected mayor. In 2013, uh, there was a last mayoral election and the pro-Kremlin candidate lost to uh, Yevgeny Roisman, uh, a prominent, uh, very prominent public figure, former member of parliament of the Russian state Duma, um, someone who is um, a political maverick, very outspoken, very independent, doesn't belong, never belong to any uh, political party, someone who's openly criticized uh, the Kremlin's war in Ukraine, somebody who's openly spoke out in support of Russian prisoners of conscience and political prisoners, somebody who's never shied away from criticizing the current system and Putin personally. This man was democratically elected as the mayor of Russia's fourth largest city, which is Ekaterinburg. But they couldn't do anything to defeat him. So a few years ago, they just abolished the mayoral elections altogether. And now the mayor of Ekaterinburg is appointed, just like the mayors of the vast majority of, of big Russian cities. I think there are now only six large cities left in the whole, medium and large cities left in the whole of Russia out of hundreds, which still have direct election for mayors. And the, 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 the answer uh, why the Kremlin feels the need to do that is I think very obvious, for example, on the, uh, uh, on, the on the example of Yekaterinburg and Evgeny Roisman. It's, uh, it's a city that has long traditions of civic activism. Of course, it's a city where Boris Yeltsin came from. It's a city that had in 1991, well, hence the Yeltsin Presidential Center is there. It's a city that in August 1991 had the third largest public demonstrations against the attempted coup d'etat after Moscow and Leningrad. Uh, this was Sredlovska at the time, now Yekaterinburg. So, um, and actually Leonid Volkov, the chief of staff to Alexei Navalny, the chief of staff to the nationwide network of uh, the Navalny regional headquarters is a former member, elected member of the Yekaterinburg city Duma. Uh, and um, so I very much look forward to to being there next week um, and sort of to refresh my impressions. Uh, but from what I know, sort of as, as a Muscovite, as an outsider, uh, it's one of those places where um, not only protest sentiments, but actually constructive civil society activism uh, is really developed. It's really high. And just last September, actually, when, when there were these local elections that are referenced, uh, there were also there was a, a special election for the Ekaterinburg City Duma, and uh, the candidate who was openly positioned as representing the Open Russia movement that has been declared undesirable uh, by the Kremlin, and whose members are liable for for uh, prison sentences, a candidate who openly identified himself with this movement came close second 
after the pro-regime candidate in the Ekaterinburg City Duma elections got more than 20% of the vote. So it is a, it is a place that is very much alive, uh, very much active, uh, and I look forward to being there in a few days. And on, on, on your sub-question, Matt, about the, uh, the, US, uh, the US diplomatic presence, what I think is very important, and we mentioned the closure of these consulates, right? The St. Petersburg consulate was closed down uh, by, by order from the Russian government back in 2017. The Ekaterinburg and the Vladivostok consulates were closed by the last U.S. administration. They were not closed uh, from the Russian side. They were closed by the U.S. side. I think that is exactly the wrong signal to send. What we always say is that it is very important alongside keeping up a firm and principled position uh, uh, in the face of the Putin regime and its repression and its corruption and everything else it's engaging in, it is very important for Western democracies, above all for the United States, to continue those channels of communication and outreach to Russian society, to Russian citizens. That includes um, media operations. And I'm really happy to see the current US administration undoing some of the damage that the previous administration did to those uh, US foreign broadcasting operations, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, and other services. But it also includes vigorous and active people-to-people -people contacts and people-to-people -people communication, and you know, study tours and exchange visits, and just being able to go to see, uh, uh, to see other countries. And I think when the US itself scales down and shuts down these uh, consulates and these operations, and the US itself shuts down these visa services, because I'm, I'm sure that even with all the restrictions that the Kremlin's try to put in place, it must be possible to find a way to still keep some channels of communication and some channels of visa issuance open so that young Russian activists and students and independent journalists can go and do those people-to-people -people exchanges. When the US itself is shutting down those channels from the US side, I think, first of all, that's very damaging. And second, that sends a profoundly wrong signal uh, not only to the Kremlin in this case, but to Russian society, which was much more important. Thanks, Vladimir. Uh, we have a, a short time remaining and uh, quite a few questions that I'd like to get through. So uh, let me suggest we do a, a, a sort of a quick one question at a time answer back and forth. And a very quick comment, you mentioned Leonid Volkov, uh, who of course cannot be in Yekaterinburg or Moscow or anyone else, anywhere else right now due to his own safety. Uh, concerns. We're going to speak with him uh, remotely next week. Uh, so invite anybody who wants to join to take part in that conversation. But I have to ask you this because I know a lot of listeners are wondering about this, Vladimir. I mean, given uh, the, the risks to any number of independent Russian voices and what has actually happened to Navalny uh, and Davidis and some of the others whom you mentioned, you're going back and forth to Russia all the time. How do you think about the risk to yourself, given what's already happened to you? And I mean, let's be frank, what could happen to you at any time? How do you think about that? Well, you know, when, when Alexei Navalny woke up from his coma uh, in Berlin uh, last year, and, and the first thing he said was that he's going to go back as soon as he's able to, uh, I was literally inundated by calls from mostly Western journalists asking me to comment on this uh, sensation, as they put it. To which I responded that I don't, not only don't I see any kind of sensation, I don't see any kind of news here. Of course, he has to go back. He's a Russian politician. A Russian politician has to be in Russia. The e easiest decision I made in my life was to go back home after both of my poisonings, as soon as I completed medical rehab and, and, and uh, sort of the post, you know, I had to learn to walk again. It was a long, long process both times in 2015 and 2017. But as soon as I 
completed medical rehab uh, abroad, I went straight back on a plane and went straight back home. You know, I think the biggest gift those of us who oppose the Putin regime could give to the Kremlin would be to 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 give up and run away. And we're not going to do that. You know, ever since the 70s, again, to speak about the Sakharov times, ever since the 70s, the Kremlin has, came to the has come to the conclusion uh, when Andropov was chairman of the KGB, that the most effective way for the, for the regime to silence its political opponents, to neutralize its political opponents, uh, was not to imprison them, put them and send them off to the gulags or put them up in psychiatric hospitals, all of which was also, of course, done. But the most effective way was to exile them out to the West. Because once a political opponent is outside of his or her own country, they very quickly lose not only the everyday sense and feeling of reality, which is important in itself, but much more importantly, they lose the moral authority to continue. Because you can't sit somewhere far away in a safe place. At least I would feel... I'm only speaking about myself. I would not feel that I had the moral right to sit somewhere in a faraway safe place and continue doing what I'm doing, what I'm doing and advocating for what I'm advocating. And, 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 you know, a Russian politician has to be in Russia. It's as simple as that. Again, the biggest gift we could give to the Kremlin would be to run away and it's just not going to happen. The only precaution I do take to answer your question, Matt, uh, my family, my wife and children are not in Russia. They're outside of the country for reasons I think I, I don't need to explain to anyone and a lot of my colleagues have actually had to do the same thing. Uh, but other than that, you know, those of us who are the public faces of the opposition, it would send a profoundly wrong and demoralizing message if we were to go and voluntarily leave the country. I can speak for myself, it's never gonna happen. Uh, let me pivot in the remaining 10 minutes to some uh, US foreign policy questions. Uh, you know, I know that you testified uh, in the European Parliament uh, late last year, and you've, you've spoken a number of times about sanctions and, and related issues in your comments just now uh, on the need to stay engaged with the Russian people through broadcasting, through consulates, and, and so on. Um, here is a, a question from Ed Verona, uh, the former uh, head of the U.S.-Russia Business Council. He asks uh, if uh, you, Vladimir, believe that leaders of Western democracies should expect any positive results from active engagement with Putin himself? Uh, and is there a risk that doing so merely bolsters Putin's prestige uh, within Russia without any serious prospect of solving problems? Uh, thank you for the question, and Ed, hello. <laughs> it's good to hear from you. Well, frankly, I think, and I'm, of course, Ed himself knows uh, the answer to the question. I'm, I'm glad he, he raised it sort of to, to, to make this point. Putin's been in power for 21 years now. Everybody knows everything there is to know about Vladimir Putin, how he reacts. And one of the most sort of fundamental traits of the Putin regime and of Putin personally, because after all, as we all know, he's a product uh, bone to bone of the Soviet KGB. And um, for them, any attempt uh, at a compromise, any uh, sort of outreach, any application or appeasement, to use that term from a different historical era, but I think one that is very relevant today, is not an invitation to reciprocate. It's an invitation to be more aggressive and to demand war and to want more and to grab more. Uh, and, you know, we actually see this. We don't even go, we don't even need to go back to previous historic examples, although, of course, I'm, I'm sure uh, we, we can all we can all think of them in the early part of the 20th century. But just to look at the example of, of Putin himself, we, we know the answer to this question because it was tried. And for the first many years, far too many, of the Putin rule, 
many Western leaders on both sides of the Atlantic, not, not just American presidents, but also European prime ministers and presidents, have tried to placate Putin and, you know, hosted him for summits and gave him red carpet treatment and called him a friend and looked into his eyes and saw his soul and engaged in resets with him and so on and so forth. All the time while Putin was already shutting down independent media, imprisoning opponents, falsifying elections, beating down peaceful demonstrators and so on and so forth. And all this while, many Western leaders were still trying to do business as usual with him in the hope of finding some sort of modus operandi in international relations, sort of turning a blind eye on domestic abuses. Let's see if we can deal with him internationally. Well, that's not how it works, not in Russia anyway. And in Russia, uh, domestic repression and external aggression are always, always two sides of the same coin. And in the end, there was a very short road. It was a very short road for Mr. Putin from the closure of the last independent uh, nationwide television network in Russia in 2003 and the first state-to-state -state territorial annexation in Europe since the end of the Second World War, which Mr. Putin accomplished in Crimea in 2014, very short road. And, and, and in a way, those Western leaders who for years had chosen to turn a blind eye on all of these domestic abuses, when they one day woke up to that first territorial annexation in Europe uh, since the end of the Second World War, they had some of the responsibility for that to share. So no, appeasement does not work, if, if, if ever we needed confirmation of that. Let me take a question here from Golfo Alexopoulos. Uh, the, USF, uh, the USF Institute on Russia said, we expected political change in Belarus following uh, persistent public protests, but uh, brutal political repression has proven successful uh, in the short term. You described the lack of support for Putin and United Russia, uh, yet the Siloviki appear firmly behind Putin, that is the security services. Uh, can there be political change in Russia if the security services continue to be loyal to Putin? Uh, is there any chance of a split uh, within the security services? Thank you, Golfo, and good to hear from you too. I hope you're staying well. Um, the the reason Lukashenko survived uh, in Belarus in the face of these mass unprecedented protests was, of course, help from Vladimir Putin, uh, financial help, but also very practical help in terms of uh, uh, Russian security services and, and, and weapons and instructors being sent over to help uh, uh, to help drown down those protests. And of course, the reason Putin was so terrified uh, at the sight of those mass protests in Belarus last year, because for him, it was in many ways a glimpse into his own future in what is likely to happen throughout Russia in 2024, when Putin attempts to cling on to power in violation uh, of the term limit, which he again unlawfully and illegitimately uh, waived uh, in this sham plebiscite uh, last year. This is why he, he did all he could to help Lukashenko, and for now he did. Because, of course, those, you know, Russia and Belarus, the last two dictatorships in Europe, the regimes very similar to each other in many ways, that very often copy off each other and support each other and back up each other. Um, and so for Putin, the sight of those protests in Belarus last year were frightening as a glimpse into the mirror, uh, as it were. Uh, but you ask if change is possible if, um, if Siloviki stay on the side of the regime. Well, I think all that depends on, on just one uh, factor, how big that public movement will be. I'm old enough, just about as a child, but, but I do very vividly remember August of 1991, those three days that marked the end of one of the most horrific and repressive systems in the history of humanity, three days. That, that, that's how things happen in Russia. And I remember very well that when that coup d'etat began, 
in, in August of 1991, in the morning of August 19th, as we all woke up to the sight of uh, Swan Lake on our television screens, the people who engineered that coup had absolutely everything at their disposal. They had the entire government apparatus, the entire party machinery, the state media, the police, the army, the KGB's overwhelming machine of repression. Uh, and of course, they had the tanks, which they sent into the streets of downtown Moscow. And I remember it's a frightening sight to see tanks on the streets of your city. The people, the Russian citizens, the Muscovites, who refused to accept and put up with that coup and who wanted to defend their own freedom and their own dignity, they, they were not armed with anything except their determination to defend their dignity and their freedom. And they went into the streets and my father was one of those people into the, in the tens and the hundreds of thousands and literally stood in front of the tanks and the tanks stopped and turned away. It's a very important lesson to me in that, is that when, when there's enough, when there's a big enough movement in society for change, in the end, nothing uh, will be able to stop it. And, and as we know from 1991, uh, the army refused the order uh, to storm the White House, the Moscow White House, because there were just so many people around. So the answer to your question is, is very simple. When there is a, and I say not if, but when, because it is a question of when. We see this very clearly in the trends in public opinion, especially among younger Russians. It's only a question of when. When that movement grows big enough, when there is that critical mass of, 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 of people in society who want and demand and are willing to stand up for change, then no Siloviki, no amount of repression will be able to stop them, as we have already seen in our history and as we will see in our history again. Thanks very much, uh, Vladimir. Let's um, uh, address head on the question of uh, U.S. policy. Uh, as I mentioned before, you know, you've testified in favor of, of sanctioning oligarchs and not people sort of doing things that uh, hit the regime in a targeted way and uh, don't, uh, you know, cut off contacts between Russia and the West. But under the umbrella of the overall kind of pressure strategy, uh, there has been a history of negotiating successfully. Um, Sakharov, perhaps, is an example. There were many examples in the Cold War of getting people out, political prisoners who are out. Uh, setting aside the question of does it hurt their long-term legitimacy if they if they leave Russia and go to the West, it's it's a good thing for their for their well-being if we can get them out. How do we do that effectively? How do we how do we negotiate with with this regime given the realities as you've described them? Thanks, Matt. And that's, that's, that's actually a very important question. And, uh, uh, you know, as President Biden himself has said, uh, the United States should be able to, to walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, President Reagan, uh, was on, for whom the building where you're based is, is, is named, uh, was able uh, at the same time to successfully negotiate arms control agreements with the Soviet Union and secure release of political prisoners and prisoners of conscience from Soviet labor camps. In fact, you know, it's known that he would famously start his every summit meeting with the Soviet leadership by laying down a list of political prisoners on the table. And there is a long and noble tradition of American presidents of both political parties using these summit meetings with Kremlin leaders to get political prisoners out, uh, to secure the release, in many cases, the lives of human beings. This tradition goes back to as far as Richard Nixon, who was otherwise not known as a champion for human rights, but he managed to secure the release, for example, of Vladimir Dremluga, one of the seven demonstrators on Red Square against the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. He secured his release. 
uh, of course, Gerald Ford, of course, Jimmy Carter, of course, in a very big way, Ronald Reagan, uh, some of the most prominent prisoners of conscience in the Soviet Union, from Alexander Ginsburg to Yuri Arlov to Anatoly Sharansky, uh, were able to uh, be released from prison um, because of direct high-level personal advocacy on a part of Western democratic leaders, above all presidents of the, of the United States. Uh, and by the way, when I was speaking earlier about, you know, political uh, opposition politicians not leaving the country voluntarily, of course, that has absolutely nothing to do with the issue of political prisoners. We need to get political prisoners released uh, in any way possible, as soon as possible, every single one of them. 383, again, just to, to repeat that horrible number, 383 political prisoners in the Russian Federation today, only the confirmed cases, only those who correspond to the international definition of a, of a political prisoner set forth by the Council of Europe and the OSCE. And so if that meeting in June does happen between Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin, I think it is incumbent on the president of the United States following in that long and noble tradition, bipartisan American tradition, whatever else they discuss, whatever else they come out uh, from that summit with, uh, that there are specific names, specific human beings who are being unlawfully and unjustly incarcerated by Vladimir Putin's security services, who should be released as a result of that summit meeting. It's happened with all of these previous American presidents. Names like, of course, Alexei Navalny, names like Alexei Pichugin, the longest serving political prisoner currently in the Russian Federation, been incarcerated for nearly 18 years, the last hostage of the Yukos case. Names like Yuri Dmitriev, a historian who's dedicated his life to documenting uh, the crimes and abuses and, and uh, the extrajudicial murders of the Stalin era, who is now serving a prison sentence on Trump up with falsified charges. And I could go on and on and on. If I even mentioned every single name, we would be here for an hour. These people, uh, these, this issue, the issue of political prisoners and their release has to be among the top of the issues that will be discussed at the summit meeting. We have more recent examples than, than, than going back to Soviet times. Mikhail Khodorkovsky and Oleg Sentsov the two most prominent prisoners of conscience uh, in the early part of, of, of Vladimir Putin's rule, uh, or in the middle part, I should say, in the later part, uh, uh, both of them would still be in, in Russian prisons today were it not for the personal intervention of, respectively, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, in the case of Khodorkovsky, and French President Emmanuel Macron, in the case of Oleg Sentsov. Uh, so uh, I, I very much look forward to uh, another or others among uh, those political prisoners on the memorial list, regaining their freedom, regaining their lives uh, as a result uh, of that summit meeting, if it does happen. If nothing else gets done and gets decided at that summit, that is one issue that has to be addressed. And that is one thing uh, that President Biden, in my view, has to come out of that summit with specific results in his hands, just as those previous American president did, uh, did of, of both parties in the Soviet times, uh, let, let's do this again uh, today, since many of those striking similarities and parallels are so similar between the Soviet period and what we're facing under Putin now. Vladimir, that, that's really, I think, a perfect note uh, on which to bring our conversation to a close. You've been very generous with your time. Uh, I personally am deeply grateful. Uh, I know that Mark shares that. We wish you uh, only the safety and well-being in this very... Uh, daunting uh, work that you have ahead of you. Um, and 
I think what you said here in the end is, is very fitting for the Wilson Center, as you say, sitting in the Reagan Building and the Kennan Institute being so cognizant of the history of uh, Washington-Moscow interactions that this, in fact, can work and that we can do real good uh, and that there is a pathway to do that. And so uh, I think we're, we're all just deeply grateful to you, Vladimir. Thank you to all of you who tuned in for the excellent questions. Uh, please stay tuned for more, including our conversation next week with Leonid Volkov. Uh, and uh, and take a look at our website where you can find all of the latest. Vladimir, thank you so much again. Matt, thank you so much for moderating this conversation and thank you to the Canon Institute for hosting. Always an honor to join Wilson Center events and I look forward to being able to do this in real life again soon.